Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible. We're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 19 today. And um, we are in this series that we're calling uh, Gods and Kings. And we're, we've been studying the lives of uh, Elijah and Elisha. And uh, I'm going to ask, uh, as you guys have just gotten really comfortable, uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18 this morning. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent messengers to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I, I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, and left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only, and I, and I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria." And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehilah, shall, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the word of the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal 
and every mouth that has not kissed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. You know, when I, when I come home from the office at the end of the day, I, I love sharing with my wife, Luann, about all the awesome things that, that God is doing in our church. You know, I love sharing about people that are coming to Christ and deciding to be baptized, people that recommit their life to Christ. I love sharing about marriages that are being healed and families being restored and, you know, people experiencing breakthroughs uh, through our counseling ministry. Uh, there are other times when I have to share the, the hard parts, the ugly parts of what has been happening uh, throughout the week in our church family, you know, where, where sin and death and just brokenness and darkness uh, just kind of seem to be reigning. Um, and it's, it's really a part of life, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not really either or, it's both and. And I, I know that's your experience. You, you know that every day has, has moments of unspeakable beauty and joy. And then, and then every day also has moments of, of searing pain and heartbreak. And that's just the world we live in. That's, that's, that's really just life in a fallen world. You know, recently I had the privilege of joining uh, Rachel Dever and Mitch McCoy in marriage. And uh, it was just a blast. Their wedding was so much fun. It was so uh, God honoring and Christ-centered. And, and uh, it was just such a joyful celebration. And uh, it was just a, a real privilege and joy for me to be a part of, of that. And um, Recently, right after that, we got the news that a longtime family friend had passed away uh, from COVID. And, um, you know, you just think about it, you know, you, you've got beauty and joy one week, and then the very next week, uh, death and brokenness. And, um, and I know that all of you have experienced that in, um, in your ways as well. And so I, I think really the question for us to consider is, you know, what happens when the darkness seems to be prevailing? You know, what happens when we just feel totally despondent over the circumstances that we find ourselves in? And as we assess those circumstances, we just think there's really no hope for change. And how do you deal with that? You know, how do you find hope when you're really, really down? You ever ask that question? You ever been there? You ever done that? Well, this morning, we're going to look to Elijah to help us find the answer. And in a lot of ways, Elijah is really one of the most unlikely characters really to kind of help us with these questions. Because you see, the reality is Elijah is a spiritual giant. He really is. Do you, do you remember the story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and Jesus is transfigured right in front of them. You guys remember this story? And so, and so he's, getting, he's trying to prepare them for his death. And what he does is he's revealing to, him, to them his glory. And he is, he is physically changed right in front of them. And they see his glory. And then in this process, two more characters appear with Jesus in front of Peter, James, and John. Do you remember the, who the two characters were? Was it, was it Adam and Abraham? No, it wasn't them. Uh, was, it, was it David, the man after God's own heart, and Daniel? Wasn't those guys. Do you remember who it was? It was Moses and Elijah. 
Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so really what that tells us is Elijah is one of the big dogs of scripture. Uh, I think he's probably top four, top five Bible character uh, from Genesis to Revelation. I think you can make uh, very easily a case for that. And what we find in this very curious story that we've just read is Elijah himself is not immune from depression and despondency. Have you noticed that? Like he's a big dog in scripture. And what we find is Elijah's down and discouraged. Elijah's depressed. And I think it's a good reminder that if that's his experience, it's going to be ours as well. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for, for what we just read, because I, I know it's, you know, it's kind of right out of 3,000 years ago. So, so what in the world's happened? You remember last week we looked at Elijah facilitating a tremendous victory uh, for the true God, the living God on Mount Carmel. Uh, he confronts Ahab and the 850 prophets of Baal and scores a big victory. In the story that we just read, he's asking God to take his life. Did you guys catch that? Did you see that? So, we, so he's going from hero to zero and he's going there really, really fast. But you know what Elijah discovers in this? He discovers grace in the darkness, doesn't he? And the reality is there, there are many of you right there this morning. That this is a word for you this morning, that God is with you in the darkness, whatever darkness you, you're walking through right now, that he loves you in the middle of the darkness that you're walking in. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Elijah's deep despondency, and then I want to talk a little bit about God's renewing presence. So I've got two points for you. See, the darkness is already breaking. I've got only two points for you this morning. All right, so, so let's, look at that. let's look at this this morning. Elijah's deep despondency. So let me just kind of set it up this way. Elijah's, Elijah has orchestrated this amazing showdown between the true God and Baal. And you remember the story from last week, fire comes down, consumes his sacrifice after they have drenched it in gallons and gallons of water. And there is a revival on top of Mount Carmel. So there are people confessing their sins, crying out to God for forgiveness. And then they begin chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And so God, God uses Elijah to secure a huge victory. Now, what's interesting at that point is King Ahab, who's the king of Israel, he immediately heads back to Jezreel where the palace is because he wants to tell Jezebel, his wife, the queen, who happens to be the mistress of Satan, by the way. But anyway, he, he tells her everything that Elijah did on top of Mount Carmel. And she is ticked off. She's pretty mad, as we're gonna see, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I think the question is, why does Elijah head to Jezreel? I mean, he's going right into the heart of things. And he is a wanted man because Ahab and Jezebel have been hunting down the true prophets of God and having those guys knocked off. And so, and so he heads right into the storm and uh, he goes to Jezreel. And so the question is, why does he do that? Now, we don't really know. The author of Kings doesn't tell us why he goes, but commentators are pretty confident that the reason why he had to be going there, he's thinking into his mind that because of what happened on Mount Carmel, either... Ahab and Jezebel are going to be converted to the worship of the true God or 
there's gonna be a revolution and they're gonna be kicked out of power. That's what he's thinking. So he's heading back to basically, you know, where the, the center of power is thinking either they've had a huge change, Ahab and Jezebel, or the people are gonna rise up and demand a godly king to lead them and um, impeach him basically from office. Now, when Elijah gets to Jezreel, do you know what happens? When he gets there, he is, he is disappointed to say the least. He really is. Because not only have the leaders of Israel not changed, but there's no one in the street demonstrating and chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. None of that is happening. And he's looking around and he's thinking, what in the world is going on? It's as if nothing has changed. And he is deeply disappointed over that. And so we pick up in verse one and I'll just kind of walk you through this and uh, I'll show you as we kind of dig into his despondency here a little bit. Look at verse one. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now I was asked about that last week because I did not mention that, you know, at, um, right at, you know, when the fire came down that that Elijah and some of his buddies hunted down the 850 prophets of Baal and had them killed. And so we kind of look at that and we think, man, that, that really is kind of harsh. You know, I mean, what if these guys repented? You know what I mean? What if they, you know, kind of were converted as well? And here's my answer to that. The prophets of Baal were responsible for the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands of kids in Israel because they seduced the people into child sacrifice to try to get the Baals to do what they wanted them to do. So, so really the penalty of that is death. And uh, that's clear in the Old Testament. So I hope that some of those prophets repented. I hope that they did, uh, but that doesn't mean that they, that they were, uh, you know, that they didn't have to pay the penalty for how they have led Israel into evil. So that's what's going on there. Now look at verse two. Then Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah saying, so may, God, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as one, of, as one of them by this time tomorrow. So she basically issues a threat and she ups the ante and says, you're gonna be gone in 24 hours and I'm gonna see to it. And if, and if that doesn't happen, then you know, may death basically come to be. Now I want you to notice verse three, because this is where we really start seeing where Elijah is mentally and spiritually. Look at verse three, then he was afraid. You see that? He was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his, his servant there. Now let's kind of camp in that just, just for a second. He is overcome with fear and anxiety. Do you know that anxiety is not a new thing? Do you know that anxiety has been around for a long time? And here you have Elijah overcome with fear and anxiety. And it's a real thing. And so even the big dog of the Bible, Elijah, has, has some uh, anxiety in his life. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is this. If you're making this story up, if this story didn't happen and this is just fiction, you're not gonna write the story this way because you wanna present Elijah in the best possible light. You guys following what I'm saying? He is a hero in Israel. He's one of the greatest prophets. And so you're not gonna write the story this way that's exposing his flaws and his weaknesses and his sins. This is just not how it's gonna go. 
You're going to write it to make him look really, really good. And it's interesting to me, you've got Elijah is afraid, Elijah is running for his life, and doesn't that contradict everything that we've already learned about Elijah? I mean, think about this. You know, Elijah fearlessly confronts the king of Israel and 850 prophets of Baal. But he melts over the threat of Jezebel, completely melts down. Isn't that a contradiction? Not not only that, but we've already seen that Elijah totally trusts God's providence in providing for his daily needs, his food, his water, uh, shelter. He's totally trusting the providence of God to provide that through through a widow in Zarephath, a pagan pagan area. And this, this widow is absolutely poverty stricken and he has no problem trusting God to provide for his needs through her, yet he's not trusting God as Jezebel puts a bounty on his head. That's a paradox. That's a contradiction. And not only that, but we see that Elijah prays fervently for God to withhold the rain from the people. And he does that. Um, He prays and God answers his prayer. It doesn't rain for three and a half years. And then not only that, but Elijah prays fervently that the widow's son who died would be raised from the dead and God answers his prayer. And not only that, but Elijah prays fervently and powerfully for God to make it rain after it hasn't rained for three and a half years. And you know what God does? God answers his prayer. But we don't see one prayer offered up for his own protection. Now that's a paradox to me. Now, can I just ask a question? Who does that remind us of? all of us. You, you guys tracking? Well, you know what I'm saying? Aren't we a picture? Aren't we a barrel of contradictions ourselves? I mean, like one minute we have peace and the next minute we're panicking. One minute we, one, one minute we are walking in faith and the next minute we're walking in fear. You know what I mean? That, that is us. This is, this is not just the story of Israel trying to follow God. This is a mirror for us. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that struggles with it. I don't know, but, uh, um, but anyway, I think, it, I think it really is us. And then I want you to notice this in verse three, a minor detail, but a big thing, okay? It's a big thing. He left his servant there. Did you notice that in verse three? He left his servant there. Basically what the commentators say on this is, he is he's leaving the ministry. He's done. He's basically saying to God, I'm not gonna be a prophet anymore. I've had it with these people. I've had it with you basically, God, and I am done. I've dispatched my servant. He's free to go do whatever he wants to do. I don't really need any more help because I am done. That's it. That's all it takes. And so that's where he is. You ever been there? You ever ever experienced that? Well, that's where our big dog Elijah is right now. Let's look at verse four as we continue with this. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a broom tree or a juniper tree, basically. And he asked the Lord that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. Now, uh, this, is, this is a great picture of where he really is. And uh, I guess the question for us is how do you go from the mountaintop to the base of a broom tree in that short amount of time? How do you go from the pinnacle to the deepest part of the valley wanting to die? How does that even happen? 
Well, I think there are a number of causes here, so let me, let me try to highlight a few of these. Um, and and I think, I think we, can, we can find that they really connect with us as well as we kind of think about our own struggle with despondency and, and depression. I think first and foremost, Elijah is absolutely physically exhausted. He is exhausted. And I think you can gather this because he has not only run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, which is 18 miles, but now he's running for his life another 90 miles to the south to Beersheba. God speaks to him there and tells him to go farther south all the way down to Mount Horeb. I don't know if he's running, biking, or he's got an Uber, but that's about three that's about 300 miles. I think he's probably on the verge of collapse. I really do. And so he is, he is physically exhausted. Second, he has drifted into isolation. He has drifted into isolation. He has spent a large part of the last few years of his ministry basically by himself. And not only that, but he deliberately cuts himself off from any remaining community that he would have by dispatching his servant, releasing his servant to go do something else. So, so what we see there is that depression is not only caused by an absence of community, but it also perpetuates it. So there's a definite connection between depression and just loneliness and being isolated. And so the reality is this, no Christian can survive without the communion of saints. You cannot survive, you cannot thrive in your walk with God without fellowship. You need Christian brothers and sisters around you every single day. You know, I, as a pastor, I'm so grateful that we, that we have available to you uh, the, the online live stream, which is a huge blessing that we can use that technology as, as you know, most other churches do, um, especially as we've kind of navigated the pandemic over the last year, or maybe you're on vacation, you can stay connected to us. But the thing that I would say about it, church, is this, that, that watching online is not the same thing. It's really not. You know, dialing in to get the sermon is not really the same thing as being physically present, spiritually present with other people who are pulling in the same direction that you are. You simply cannot grow in isolation. And so that's where Elijah is. And then I think third, I think we see that Elijah has lost all perspective. He's lost all perspective. Now, what do I mean by that? He's really lost his focus on God. He's really forgotten God in all of this. And we are a forgetful people. And it is easy for us as we become fixated on the problems and the disappointments and the hurts of life. What happens is we get fixated on those. They grow in size. And then God over here shrinks. So we become 
we become consumed by the circumstances, the difficulties, the problems, and it just grows as we focus on it and focus on it. And yet God just kind of shrinks in comparison as we focus less and less on him. And so what happens is we experience money problems, health problems, relationship problems, marital problems, family problems. And what happens is our awareness of God's peace and presence around us you know, begins to disappear. And so, so that happens and we, and we cease to walk by faith and we start walking by sight. And it really gets us down. It can really pull you down emotionally. And so, and so you see this in verse 10. You see, you see how his loss of perspective has hijacked his thought processes. Let me show you this. Let me show you how he's thinking here. Look at verse 10. Um, it says this, and he said, I've been very jealous. So, so God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that, this is in verse nine. He asked him, what are you doing here? Which is an interesting thing, God asking a question. God knows the answer to the question. When God asks a question, he wants us to focus on the answer. You know what I mean? So, so he's asking the question to get Elijah to kind of think about the answer. And this is what Elijah says, verse 10. He says, I have been very jealous or zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek to take my life as well. Now, church, what does that sound like to you? How does that land on you? Like if I stood up here and said, you know what? I am the only one in central Indiana who's been faithful to God. Everybody else is compromised. Well, how would that land on you? You'd be like, Scott, you are arrogant. You just need to shut up. You know what I mean? That's what, that's what you would need to say. You would need to say to me and, uh, and you would be exactly right. He is filled with pride and self-pity. And there's this sense of that God owes him something. I mean, did you kind of pick up on that? Like I've been very jealous for you, God. I've been very zealous to do everything you've told me to do and they've killed everybody and they're coming after me now and I'm the only one left. I mean, there's kind of an indictment on God here. I mean, did you kind of pick up on that? There's this kind of edge that Elijah has with God because I don't think God is cooperating with Elijah's plan. I think that's where that is. And, and it's kind of coming through. And so Elijah's been very faithful. He's done everything God has asked him to do. And I think Elijah's asking for a little something back, a little spiritual quid pro quo, if you will. Now, let's just kind of stop right there because we'll, we'll dig into more of this in just a moment. But let's ask the question, What's the point of this? I, I think the point of this is this. Elijah's despondency is a good reminder of our despondency. I think, I think, I think Elijah's depression is a reminder to us, church, that Christians can get depressed. That, that Christians can have suicidal thoughts. Can we just say that? I think, I think that's about where he is. Now, Elijah's not thinking about taking his own life. He knew that that would, that that would be wrong, uh, but he's, he is asking God to take his life. That's how down and depressed that he is. And so the reality is, is Christians can be suicidal. And, and so if that is where you are, church, if you are having those thoughts more and more, you need to, you need to get help. You need, to, you need to seek out a counselor or a pastor to kind of help you navigate that. And so Christians can really get depressed and not just the weak ones, the Elijahs, 
the big dogs of the Bible can get depressed. And so even if you are a follower of Jesus, you can know despair and despondency. And by the way, you know, I, 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 think there's, I think there's some good news in this. You know, if you struggle with this, if this is where you are today, you know what? The good news is you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not even the only one in this room struggling with despair and despondency. Did you know Mother Teresa struggled with depression? The prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers ever, battled depression. Just, uh, he was preaching one day, 12,000 people, they were in this huge building and uh, Spurgeon was preaching and uh, the building was packed, 12, 10, 12,000 people in this building and one of his detractors stood up and yelled fire in the middle of the assembly. And there was a stampede and I think there was somewhere between five to seven people died trying to get out of the building that day. And it just, it just torpedoed Spurgeon. And uh, he was really, really down because of that for a very long time. You know, Martin Luther struggled with depression. Um, Martin Luther King struggled with depression. And uh, what we see here is Elijah struggled with depression. It's, it's a reality. And so if those guys and gals can struggle with it, we're gonna face it as well. And so uh, that's really good news because they made it through it and we, by God's grace, can make it through it as well. Now, here's the question. What's the benefit of being leveled by life? You know, what's, what's the silver lining and kind of being flattened by the circumstances in life that lead to despair. I think it reminds us something that's really powerful and that is this, how weak we really are. It reminds us that we need a savior every day. And it really, it really drains us of the illusion that we're strong in and of ourselves and we don't need anybody or anything. And so anytime we come back to reality of our, our true weakness, that's when God is most powerful when we realize our weakness. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul. He talks about in Corinthians how God gave him a thorn in his flesh. It's interesting. God gave him a thorn in his flesh. Now, when you think about the Apostle Paul, I mean, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was maligned. I mean, he'd been through the entire gamut and God gives him a physical ailment. We think it's an eye, he had some kind of eye problem. And, uh, And so God gives him this physical ailment on top of everything else he's dealing with. Now, why? Well, Paul's answer to that is this, to keep me from becoming conceited. So God gave it to him to remind him of his weakness so that God's power would be able to flow uninterrupted through the apostle Paul. Perhaps that's what he wants to do through all of us. You know, Sharon Hurst wrote a book called The Last Addiction. And she had struggled with alcoholism for many, many years. And uh, she got, she was driving while intoxicated. She got pulled over and arrested. And I love, I love what she wrote about it. This is what she says. She says, she says, unexpected grace whispers words I would have never believed while I sat in handcuffs in the back of a police car. You are blessed in the very moment you're at the end of your rope because failure allows us to fall into grace. Failure allows us to fall 
into grace. See, you don't get, you don't get grace on the mountain. You get, it, you get it at the bottom. You get it at the bottom, at the lowest point. And so that is, that is Elijah's despondency. Now, what about God's renewing presence? What does God do? How does God respond to his beat down servant Elijah? Well, I think there are at least three things that we can see kind of in God's renewing presence. And the first one is this, that God comes to Elijah in his despondent state with tender mercy. That's how God comes to Elijah in tender mercy. Let me, let me just show you this in verse five. This is kind of interesting. He says, uh, the writer of Kings writes, he says, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and, be, and behold, there was at his head, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, what God does here is he sends him an angel. Did you notice that? And what does the angel do to Elijah? Does he say, fear not, for I am with you. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. Does he say, repent, Elijah, and turn away from your sin? Does he say that? No. Does the angel say, hey, do you want to talk about it? I know you're kind of feeling kind of down. Do you want to just talk about it? No, he doesn't say that. Do you know what the angel does? He cooks for him. He touches him, probably hugged him, but he cooks for him. Now, I've kind of been wrestling with this all week because I'm like, this is, this is really not what I would expect here. I mean, there's no doubt, church, Elijah needs to be corrected. There's no doubt that he needs to be confronted about this. Elijah's not in his right mind. And, and what the angel does is he cooks for him, makes him, makes him a cake. And uh, I think it's a beautiful picture of the gentleness of God. That God meets him at his lowest point. That God doesn't go down in there swinging. You know, God doesn't go in there laying, in it, laying the wood on him. He, he needs correction and he needs rebuke, but God doesn't start there. God starts with, here's something to eat, get some rest. And so it reminds us, church, that we are physical people. We have physical bodies. We are a body, soul, and spirit. And we are, and, and those three are just intertwined mysteriously. And a big part of despondency is kind of where we are physically. And I think there are a lot of Christians who, you know, when they see another Christian who's really down and really discouraged, they, you know, they, they think it's just a spiritual problem. You know, they start troubleshooting and problem solving. And so they go down this list of things. Now, are you praying? You know, are you reading your Bible? Are you rebuking the devil? Are you uh, pleading the blood? Are you praising God? Are you giving thanks to God? You, you know, you go down this list and we just kind of lay it on them about all the things that, that they need to be doing. And, and there's, a, there's a place for that. There, there's no doubt about that. But there are also times because of where we are physically that we don't need prayer and we certainly don't need a lecture. What we need to do is just go out to eat, go to a concert and then sleep in the next day. Can I get an amen to that? I mean, for some of you, the most spiritual thing you could do today is go home and take a nap. And some of you are doing it early right now, which is kind of amazing. Um, good job, that's a spiritual thing. You need rest. 
And God in his love, God in his grace, God in his mercy knows exactly what Elijah needs and he gives it to him. Not once, but twice. And the angel even touches him. It shows us sometimes we need a hug. You know, sometimes we, we just need <clears throat> a pat on the back. I love Isaiah 42, three, because this shows you the gentleness of God. It shows you how he relates to us. Um, this, is a, this is really, really cool inside. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Are you bruised today? Because God won't break you. You just got a little bit of fire left. God's not gonna extinguish that. You know, he loves you. And so, you know, Jesus says, come unto me all of you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know that your savior is gentle and lonely? Did you know that? You know, that's, that's, that's your God, gentle and lowly. So, so that's the first thing is God comes to him and meets him in his tender mercy. So, so then he gets him fed, gets him full, gets, him, you know, gets some rest in him. And he's got he's to trek down even further to Mount Horeb. Now, there's another name for Mount Horeb and that, that name is Mount Sinai. And you might be familiar with Mount Sinai. If you know the book of Exodus, you know that that is where God met Moses. It's the exact same place. And God met Moses and gave the people of Israel the 10 commandments. He gave them, gave them the law. And so Moses, Moses was on this mountain and he sees the glory of God and Elijah, commentators speculate that he's going to the very place where Moses was. It is very much possible he went to the exact same place. Now, and what does, what does God do there to meet his despondency? And I think what we see God doing there is God speaks to Elijah. God gives his word to Elijah. He's taking care of him physically. He's, he's, getting, he's got his rest. And, and now his heart is softened a little bit and God begins to speak. Now, let me show you this in verse 11. I wish I had more time uh, to really talk about this section in particular, because there's a lot here, but let's just ju jump into it. Let me show it to you, verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. That is, that is a serious wind, okay? Um, and so, but the Lord was not in that wind. And then after a wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a small, still voice. And uh, it says this, Elijah heard it. Now, what in the world is going on here? That's a great question. Um, I think that what's happening here is when you, when you talk about the earthquake and the wind and the fire, it is really, it's really talking about all the different ways that we see in this chapter, all the different ways that God speaks to his people. Okay, so, so there are examples of this all the way through scripture where God reveals himself. He manifests his presence through fire. Do you remember Abraham? You remember Moses in the burning bush? Do you remember the apostles in Acts chapter two where the spirit of God is poured out 
And it was through tongues of fire that they, they see the manifest presence of God. It's pretty, pretty incredible. But not only that, but in Acts chapter 2, you see wind accompanied uh, the presence of God. Um, you see when Moses gives the people the law of God, he does it with an earthquake. So these are all the different ways that God can, can reveal himself, all the different ways God speaks to us through a multiple sets of different ways because we're all unique and he's just an amazing God. And so that's just what he does. But the ultimate manifestation of God's presence is, is really God speaking to Elijah through a small, still voice. Just through the, just a small, still voice, just through his word. And he gives Elijah his word. We won't, we won't read it, but I'll just, I'll just tell you. He tells Elijah, I want you to go to Damascus and I want you to anoint Haziel, king over Syria. And, uh, and he's gonna attack Ahab and, uh, with his powerful army and he's gonna give Ahab what, what he deserves. And, and then, and then uh, I want you to go and, and anoint Jehu, the new king over Israel. And so, and so if there's any left that Haziel didn't deal with, then Jehu is gonna deal with the remainder of the Ahab administration. And then I want you to go, Elijah, and anoint your, your successor, Elisha. I want you to anoint him, and then he'll clean up anything that Jehu doesn't clean up and any that, doesn't, that Haziel doesn't clean up. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm gonna bring justice, and I'm gonna do it my way. And he gives him his word right there. And he does it through a small, still voice. Now, he also says, God says one more thing. This is kind of interesting because you remember how Elijah said, well, I'm the only one. You know, I'm the only one and left basically and they're trying to kill me too. Well, basically what God tells him is, no, you're not the only one. I've raised up 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. There's 7,000 out there more, a remnant, if you will. And so what I think is really happening here, and I think this is really the core of Elijah's depression and despondency, is I think that what he's done, what Elijah has done here, is he has boxed God into Elijah's plan instead of trusting in God's plan. That's what I think. I think Elijah is down because Elijah wanted the turning point for his country and his ministry to be Mount Carmel. And it wasn't that. I mean, it was a great manifestation. It was a great victory. But it wasn't the turnaround that Elijah wanted. And I think he's frustrated with God because he wanted it to go a certain way and it's not going that way. And, uh, and I think he has really boxed God in. He's basically telling God how God is going to work among his people. And Elijah doesn't like it. Elijah doesn't like what God is doing instead. And, uh, and God deals with him ever so gently in this, basically saying, you know, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 that are faithful to me. And you're not. I'm still working, Elijah. I'm working a plan that you don't see, that you don't even know. And that plan will terminate with Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. And so... So I think Elijah is despondent and depressed because the circumstances in Elijah's life are not what he wants and he's pushing back. And I think that's where it's come from. Now, let's just apply it 
to us. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been disappointed with maybe how your life has turned out? Maybe, you know, maybe you got married thinking one thing that it would be a certain way and it has been the exact opposite. Or maybe you and your spouse wanted to have kids more than anything else and, and you've just struggled. You, you, to this point, you've been really struggling with infertility. Or maybe you've recently lost a loved one and you're really just grieving that loss. And uh, maybe you're just angry at God and you're frustrated because of, because of really, you know, the plan of God. I, I remember, I, remember uh, I was at this very same point. This was a number of years ago. Uh, we were, the church was really young and, and, uh, and uh, it was early in the early days of the church and it just wasn't going very well. And uh, we were having to set up and tear down and everybody was exhausted and just seemed like just, there was just a lot of conflict and divisions and stuff like that. And, and I'm just working as hard as I can preaching and praying and and I'm just thinking God you know most everybody's cooperating except for you you ever said that and that's where I was and I just kind of felt like you know what I'm giving it all I got to this God and it's just it just stinks and um, that's just where I was and then you know my father-in-law Woody Church the late Woody Church He's a pastor, you know, he, he pulled me aside. He said, you know what he said to me? I'll never forget it. It's like, like it happened yesterday. He said, Scott, you have to understand God's not gonna do it your way. He's gonna do it his way and he's gonna do it in his time. And you either have to accept his way or you need to get out. And that was just, that was God's small, still voice speaking through my father-in-law to me. And I just like, the light bulb went off and I realized that I was trying to manipulate and control God to get circumstances to go the way I wanted them to go. Instead of me just saying, God, I'm just your servant. You tell me what to do and I'll do it and I'll leave the results with you. Is there an area of your life where you just gotta let go? and you just gotta go with God's plan? Is there an area of your life where you're fighting God? Because it could be the root of of why you're down and and really discouraged in this. You know what, let let me just say it this way. Um, God has a plan for you. And and not only that, but God has a plan for our church. And, And not only that, God has a plan for America. And not only that, God has a plan for the world. He is sovereign over all of those things. And we just need to trust him. We just need to go with his plan. And we just need to serve him every day. And, and, and not just be constantly complaining about where our circumstances are. And so God comes to Elijah in tender mercy. God speaks to Elijah. And then lastly, and I'll just, just close with this, God, God defends Elijah. Because, because basically what God tells him, God tells him in, 
verse 11, he says, I want you to stand on the mount. I want you to stand in the cleft of the rock. And, and what God is going to do is he's going to pass by Elijah, just like he did with Moses back at Exodus. He's going to reveal his glory to Elijah. And he tells Elijah, I want you to kind of hide in the cleft of the rock. And so Elijah experiences this fierce wind, there's earthquake, this fire from God. And it's fascinating to me because Elijah is not destroyed by it. Like rocks are turning into powder, mountains are falling over, all of this stuff is happening, and yet Elijah is unscathed. Why is that? I think the answer is he's hiding in the rock. You know that great old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Do you remember that? Who's the Rock of Ages? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's Jesus. And what's the gospel message? That what Jesus did is he took, he took the wrath so we wouldn't have to. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he, when he gave up his spirit to the Father, there was an earthquake. There was darkness in the sky. There was a wind blowing, right? I mean, that whole thing happened when Jesus died. And so Jesus took that so that we wouldn't have to. He shielded us from the, from the judgment of God. And that is how much, that is how much God loves you. And so in the middle of the darkness that you're walking through, what we need to do is cling to Jesus. He's, he is our rock. He is our fortress. And we are loved by him and he is with us. And so I know there are times when it feels like the darkness is winning, but, but make no mistake, Jesus, Jesus is the light. He is the cleft. He is the rock. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today and we, we know that despondency and depression can be very complicated. But we also know that even in that, you are sufficient. That you are our portion and you are strong. And so we, we thank you, God, for your love for us. We thank you that you know what it's like to, to live on earth in a physical body, to experience hunger, to experience exhaustion. You, you know all about that. You even know what it's like to have people coming after you. Lord, you know all about that. And I thank you that you, you went through that for us. That you went through the cross to show us just how much you love us. And I just pray for those in our congregation that are hurting right now. God, for those that are down, that are just experiencing some very heavy circumstances in their life. And I pray, God, that you would, you would just reveal your glory to them, that you would pass by, that you would speak however you want to speak, through an earthquake, through wind, through fire, through a small, still voice, through an angel, that you would just give each and every one exactly what they need. Thank you that you, that you come to us in tender mercies, that your mercies are new every morning. 
So we give you praise and thanks. And all of God's people said, amen.